Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. But uh, if you've been with us, then you know that we have been studying our way through this amazing book, the book of Romans. And if you're new today, then you've picked a wonderful Sunday to jump in to the study with us. We are going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. And when we come to Romans 12, we come to a watershed moment in this amazing, amazing book. This is a juncture in the book of Romans where everything Changes, And I say that because for 11 chapters, uh, Paul has been unpacking for us really in, in pretty glorious terms, some rich theological depth, uh, uh, the monumental reality of what Jesus has done uh, to provide for you, to provide for me, uh, what, this one word that we call salvation or our, our deliverance. He's unpacked for us, uh, what is salvation? What does that even mean? Uh, what about those who have never heard the gospel? How, how can anyone experience salvation? Paul has taken us through all those questions and so many more, and we have marinated in those truths. We have uh, rejoiced in those truths. We've celebrated those truths. Uh, They've encouraged us actually in ways that are hard for us to articulate with words. And now as we stand on the brink of Romans chapter 12, for the next five chapters through the end of Romans, Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15, and 16, uh, Paul's going to take what he's been teaching us. He's taught us for 11 chapters the theological realities of salvation. Now for the next five chapters, he's going to unpack for us how is that that the gospel practically lived out in the life of a believer. Uh, many scholars say he moves from, from orthodoxy into orthopraxy. How, how does this actually find expression in our day-to-day lives? And as we're going to see, Paul is not one to just make suggestions as we study the next five chapters, they are filled with imperatives. They are filled with commands. Paul's going to say, do this. If you want to live the Christian life, this is the kind of life that we are called to, to live. It's an interesting fact that for the previous 11 chapters, there has been 13 commands. 11 chapters, only 13 commands. But now in Romans chapter 12 alone, there are 11 commands in this one chapter. In fact, uh, just for your next trivia night, uh, there are more commands in Romans chapter 12 than any other chapter in the entire New Testament. And so I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12, and it's the Apostle Paul teaching us how to live the good life. If you've ever felt like, man, I've, I've been following Jesus but, but I feel like I'm missing out on the abundant life that he's promised. Or I feel like, man, something's missing in, in my Christianity. Paul's going to give us a foundation for the Christian life. And so buckle up, buttercup, as they say. It's about to get <laughs> painfully practical. And uh, honestly, I would say this. Outside of salvation, there's nothing more important than this. How do you live out your Christian faith? Once you become a follower of Jesus, there's nothing that you and I could do that is more important than the way we conduct our lives. Uh, Because from a watching world's perspective, what's the biggest criticism against you, against me as followers of Jesus? Though They'll say, man, I don't know about Christianity. Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. And so what they're saying is I've, I've heard what they believe, but I've also watched how they live and there's a disconnect. And I would suggest to you, for me, this has been true. I I believed in Jesus majority of my life. 
But it wasn't until after I was 21 where I actually allowed those beliefs to find expression in my day-to-day life. And it was a game changer for me. That's when Christianity wasn't just this religious philosophy, but it became life-giving to me. The things that I thought would actually drag me down and be a buzzkill were actually the things that actually built me up and where I found, I found freedom in my life by applying what God's word says in a very practical and very tangible way. So if you would, uh, let's look at Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 1 and 2. And if you would, why don't you stand to your feet with me as we read this out loud. Let's stand in honor of God's word. And, uh, and it's, it's Sunday, so if you're not working out today, this will count for your squats. All right, up and down, up and down. All right, here we go. Uh, if we can get to the red letter words, if you could, read those out loud, really loud, really proud. And here's what God's word says to us today. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not any longer to the pattern of this world, but be How do we do that? By the renewing of our minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his perfect, and his pleasing will. Father, we thank you so much for your word and God for how it speaks to us on a very practical level so we can all apply it. And so God, I pray today that you would unpack your word to us, that God, you would speak to every individual here in this room, every individual tuning in online or listening to this podcast at a later date, that God, you'd minister to each one of us at our point of need. And God, we're going to give you all the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Yeah. We're going to see four reasons in these two verses, four reasons why we serve God with all that we are. And I'm going to give you two of those reasons today from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. And then next week, we're going to look at two more from Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And I hope you'll take some notes because uh, on, uh, on one hand, they're very plain, very surface, very easy for us to, to grasp and, and attain. But on the other hand, there's some complexity to Paul's words here in these, these two verses. And so four reasons for faithful Christian service. And here's the first one. Here's the first one that Paul gives us. If you're taking notes, it's where they begin. He gives us the rationale for our service, the rationale for our service, the reason for our service. And he's going to point to the mercies of God. The rationale, the the reason we serve is because God has been so merciful to us. And what's the motivation in your life for Christian service? What's the motivation for you to follow God? What's the motivation for you to serve God? Why do we help the hurting in our city? Why do we come to church? Why do you join a small group? Why do you lead a small group? Why do you faithfully volunteer week after week? Why do you live for God, not just on Sunday, but for 24, 7, 365? Why do you love God with all of your heart? Paul's going to say it's because of his mercy. Let's look at it in verse 1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. That word, therefore, is a very interesting word. If you've been with us, Paul's used this word a couple of times. But anytime you see the word, therefore, it points to what's already been stated. And so he's recapping the first 11 chapters at this point. He's saying, hey, in light of all that God has done, in light of you and I uh, rebelling against God, in light of you and I conducting ourselves in such a way that is actually worthy of God's wrath, and in light of you and I once being enemies of God, but now by God's grace, ushering us into not only friendship with God, but adopting us as children of God in light of all that God's done. Therefore, in light of everything Paul's already unpacked for us in 11 chapters, he says, he says, I I urge you in view of God's mercies. 
That word urge you is uh, this Greek word uh, parakaleo. It, it, it means to appeal. It means to I beseech you, I implore you, I command you. It's, it's I call you into action is the idea behind it. And if you've Studied the Bible for any amount of time. Maybe you're with us uh, when we studied uh, the Holy Spirit and, and who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do in the life of the believer? Then, then maybe you've heard of this, this Greek word for the Holy Spirit is, is paraclete. So, so this word's parakaleo. The Holy Spirit is, is paraclete. And what does the paraclete do? What does the Holy Spirit do in the life of the believer? He exhorts us. He, he beseeches us. He appeals to us. He urges us. He calls us into action. And Paul is, is rifting off of that. And he's saying, hey, I, by the power of the Spirit, I'm urging you in view of God's mercy. The, the ESV says mercy. So it's not just one time that God was merciful to you. It's, it's manifold mercy. It's the many sides of God's mercy. It's different angles of God's mercy. And aren't you thankful how merciful he's been to you at every turn in your life? It wasn't just a one time that he expressed mercy to you, but day after day, he displays mercy to you. That lamentation says, 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 says that every day his mercy's fresh and new with the morning. And I don't know about you, but I need fresh mercy in my life because because your boy screws up a little bit. And I'm thankful for, for mercy, not just a one-time mercy, but, but manifold mercy time after time after time. It's, it's all of Romans chapter 1, verse 12, as Paul unpacks that he, he talks about how once we were not a people, but now we are a people of God. Once we were rebelling and running away from God, but now God has brought us close. Once aimless without hope, but now he's given us a living hope. Once we were enemies of God, but now he's adopted us as children of God. Once we were destined to a dreadful damnation, now we look forward to a wonderful glorification. Once we were on our own advocating for ourselves, but now we have an advocate who sits at the right hand of God and advocates on your behalf. Once all heaven and earth were stacked against us, but now Paul says, if God is for us, who could be against us? Like all the many manifold sides of his mercy is what Paul's appealing to here. And here's the reality. We could talk about the mercies of God expressed in your life, in my life for thousands of years to come. I think one of the realities when we get to heaven will be this jaw dropping reality, like one millisecond into heaven, like He's been so good to us. He's been good to us on levels that it's hard for us to even comprehend right now on this side of eternity. No greater display of God's mercy towards you and me than this one word that Paul's referenced time and time again throughout Romans, this reality that part of your salvation is that you've been justified. You've experienced justification, this $5 theological word that has tremendous implications for you and for me. And we've talked about this, but I just want to revisit it one more time to make sure we all we all remember this, that justification, here's what justification is. Justification is the act of God whereby he forgives the unsaved person's sins and credits to them the righteousness of Christ when through faith they believe. No greater display of mercy than whenever God gave you justification. A lot of times when we talk about what salvation is, what does salvation mean? A lot of people will say, well, well, God means God forgave me. And if that's all he did, that would certainly be enough, right? Like he forgave all your sins, like all your mistakes, all, everything that condemn you before the courts of heaven. Part of salvation is he's, he's removed them from your life. The, the Bible says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your sin and transgressions from you, not attached to you, not, not documented against you, expunged outside of your record, no longer able to condemn you. You've been forgiven. That's wonderful, but that's not, where, that's not all. That doesn't just stop there. 
God, in his great mercy, credits to you, not your own righteousness, not all the good things you've done. He credits to you. He dumps the truckload of righteousness into your account. He credits to you the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see the things you've done, good or bad. No, he sees the perfect, stainless, flawless righteousness of God. Righteousness of Christ, that's what allows you and me to be children of God. That's what allows you and I to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. You've been forgiven. You've received, you've received the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. And here's the crazy thing. All that's yours, not because you did a bunch of good stuff, not because you climbed Mount Everest in God's name and took a selfie. You didn't earn it. You didn't like have to walk across the hottest desert. You'd have to swim across the deepest ocean. It's yours simply through faith. When you believe, and Paul's saying in light of how merciful he's been, I urge you, I implore you, I challenge you, I call you to action. I love this. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, there it is. We've been justified through faith. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we have the peace of God in our life, we have peace with God through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You know, you stand today by grace. You didn't earn it. We don't deserve it, but you stand in his grace. Paul would say this in Romans eleven thirty three: Have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of God? Extravagantly generous. When we talk about God's grace, it's God's radical grace towards you and me. His mercy, it just, it's so many sides to it. There's manifold mercy of God, this extravagant generosity of God, this deep, deep wisdom it's way over our heads. He says, we'll never figure it out. And aren't you grateful for that? Isaiah would say this, Isaiah 55, 9 says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, declares the Lord. And what's crazy about that, in his infinite wisdom, he has you on his mind. How, how can I be gracious to them? As a parent, how can I help them become who I created them to be? How can I guide them? How can I direct their steps? His manifold, manifold generosity, his manifold mercy to you and to me. He'd say this in, in verse 36 of Romans 11. He says, everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory, always praise. Yes, yes, yes. It's Paul fired up about the graciousness of God, the manifold mercy of God. And Paul says that's our rationale for service, that that's the reason we serve. That's why we serve him. Some might say, well, I serve because I feel called or I serve because I'm gifted in that way. And all those are wonderful things, but that's not why we serve. All those are secondary. They're never primary. The primary reason we serve God is because he first served you. Because he's been so gracious to you. He's been so gracious to me. God, in light of all you've done, what can I do? What can I do for you is the idea. The reason why you and I serve is because we've just gotten a glimpse of his goodness towards us. We've gotten a glimpse of his, his, his glory. We've, we've tasted a little bit of his mercy. And we've seen his great love. And this is the rationale for our service. This is what motivates us to serve God. God, you've done so much for me. What can I do for you? Here's the second response. So the first one, the rationale for our service is God's been merciful to us. And I would say if you're not currently serving God with all that you are, then it's for one of two reasons. It's one, you haven't really experienced his mercy to the degree that he wants you to. 
you haven't marveled at his mercy. You haven't tasted his mercy. Or maybe you've just forgot how merciful he's been. And, And I would just encourage you this week, take some time to marinate in that. Think about all the ways God's been so good to you and so good to me. And what it does is compels us to say, okay, God, in light of all you've done, what, here's my life. The second reason, the response of our service. So one's the rationale of our service. It's the mercies of God. But number two, the response of our service. Paul says this, the, the proper response, whenever you logically, when you rationally understand what God's done, the response of our service is the sacrifice of our bodies. All that we are is a reasonable response to God's mercy. Let's look at it in verse 1. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in light of all that he's done, here's what we're to do, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Honestly, this spiritual act of worship is an unfortunate translation. The Greek word there is, is logakos. We get our English word logic from, I think I just butchered that Greek. If you want to hear the real translation, ask Roger afterwards. He'll tell you how to actually pronounce that. Uh, but, but we get our English word logic from it. And so Paul's saying, in light of all God's done, a logical response to God's mercy is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. When you and I understand the enormity of what God has done for you, when you understand the majestic plan that God has lavished on you, when you understand the radical grace he's poured out on you, the only logical response, the only reasonable response, the only response that makes any sense is to present ourselves to God and say, God, here I am. God, God, you get all of me. It's to come before God and just bend the knee and say, God, here's my life. Here's my body. Here's my plans. Here's my hopes. Here's my dreams. Here's my family. Here's my finances. Here's my career. Here's my mental faculties. Here's my physical faculties. God, all that I am, you're worthy of it all. Is the only reasonable thing to do. It's the only logical thing to do in light of all God has done for you. In light of all God has done for me is to come before him and say, God, every fiber of my being it's yours. What do you want from me? I am your servant. I like the way J.B. Phillips puts it in his translation of the Bible. He says this, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship. How do we intelligently worship God? What's a reasonable response? As an act of intelligent worship, he says, give your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. It's the intelligent way we worship God. When we really understand it's a reasonable response to what God has done for us. Let's jump back to the NIV. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Interesting. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we're to offer our bodies in service to God. Now, I don't want to move past this too quickly because we don't talk about this a whole lot, actually. But it's, it's a really a foundational understanding of Christianity. It's a foundational understanding of what does it mean to follow, follow God. For some of you, this is what's been missing in your Christian life. And if you get this, it will unlock 
a world of opportunity in your spiritual relationship with God. This is where Christianity gets real. This is where the abundant life is found. This is where freedom is found. And Paul says we're to offer our bodies in service to God. Now, bodies in America are a really, a really big business. They're a really big deal. LeBron James touts investing $1.5 million annually in keeping his body fit and healthy. In 2022, Americans spent $4.5 trillion taking care of our bodies. That's an average of $13,500 per person. Look around the room. An average $13,500 in investing in our bodies, taking care of our bodies. Americans spend trillions of dollars shaping our bodies, tanning our bodies, injecting our bodies, surgically changing our bodies, dressing our bodies, feeding our bodies, medicating our bodies, caring for our bodies. And this has only increased with uh, the, the kind of the current phenomenon of biohacking with guys like Huberman from Stanford and uh, Gary Brecka and, and different mainstream ideas. And I would say this, I'm for all those. I actually participate in a lot of those. I'm, I'm for all those things. But the point of presenting our bodies to God is not so God would say, wow, you've really improved on what I gave you. Like that's not, that's not why, why we're to submit our bodies to God What God knows is that our bodies are means of delivering his message of grace. What God knows is that in your body is where the gospel is lived out. In your body is how we represent him on a day-to-day basis. God didn't give us bodies just so we could look a certain way. God gave us our bodies so we could live a certain way. And this is where the Christian life, where Christian service begins. It begins when you give your body to Jesus. And what many people in our city would say is that, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person, I'm a spiritual person. And what they mean by that is that I believe in God, but the way I live my life, what I do with my body doesn't matter. And that's contrary to Christianity. What many people inside the church and outside the church would say is that if I love God with my heart, if I believe with God in my mind, then it'll override my responsibility to love God with my body. But we have to be very careful here, I would suggest. If we get to a place where we say, I think this way about God, I feel this way about God, therefore what I do with my body on a day-to-day basis is not important, I would suggest that's a very dangerous place to be. If you don't pay attention to your actions with your body, you'll get your soul in trouble. If you don't do anything to serve God with your body, or if you do a disservice to God with your body, you'll jeopardize your spiritual vitality of your soul. And here's why this is so important for us to grasp, because the body is the beachhead for sin. If you doubt that the body is the beachhead for sin, think about it this way. Uh, Whenever you die, how how deeply will you struggle with sin? Your struggle with sin is over at that point. Why? Because our struggle with sin is, is in our... It's in our body, it's in our flesh, as Paul talks about in previous chapters. Uh, as people who are, uh, who are currently struggling with sin, it's because, because we're alive. When, when you're in heaven, two things you won't be able to do. Uh, one, heaven will be glorious because your struggle with sin will be over. Uh, but the other thing you won't be able to do is tell people about the radical grace and love of God. 
So currently, Paul's taught us that we're spiritually, we're dead to sin, but sin is not dead to us. We talked about this in Romans 6, Romans 7, that sin desires to, to master you, sin desires to control you, sin tempts you in your body, sin wants to engage you in bodily behaviors that ultimately corrupt your soul and diminish your spiritual vitality. That's why First uh, Peter says this, Peter says these words, he says, he says, beloved, I beg you, I beg you. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12. I urge you. I, I beseech you. These are strong words. I call you to action. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. What's that about? He's saying, hey, remember your citizenships in heaven. Remember this earth is not your home. Remember you're just, you're just passing through. And on this journey of life through earth, he says, abstain from fleshly lust. In other words, we're called to abstain from some things that our body is actually drawn to do. And here's why. Because they wage war against your soul. So in other words, what you do with your body, it impacts your soul. And a lot of times in Christian thinking within the church and outside the church is, well, I believe in God, therefore I'm good with God, and therefore what I do with my body doesn't matter. And that's contrary to a biblical understanding of the Christian life. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer Offer your bodies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The imagery here, most scholars say that Paul's drawing on his Old Testament sacrifices to where they would offer a sacrifice to God. The ESV says to present. They would present offerings. They would go to the temple and they would present uh, sheep or goats or, or, or birds, different types of sacrifices. They would offer them. They would present them to God. And what he's saying is that we should do the same thing with our, our bodies, all of who we are. All the hours of our days belong to you. Not just Sunday, but 168 hours this week, God, we present them to you. This is the basis of Christianity. Romans 6, 12 through 13 says this, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. But here's, here's the word again. Do not present, do not offer the members of your, uh, your members to, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather, here it is again, present, offer yourselves to God as those who've been bought, uh, brought from death to life and your members, in other words, your hands, what you do, your feet, where you walk, your mind, what you think, your words, what you say, your ears, what you listen to, offer the members of your body to God as instruments of Righteousness, and this is not just limited to Romans. This is all over. This is all over the New Testament. We have to be very careful that we don't get to a place where, in our hearts, we love God, but with our life, we don't do anything for God, because that is not Christianity. Here's what Paul says: First Corinthians six nineteen through twenty says says Do you not know that your body, your body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, and you've been rescued. You received it from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. That's important for me to hear. That's important for some of us because because I want to do some things that are contrary to God and contrary to God's word. But it's important for me to remember. It's important for us to remember. My life's not my own. The moment I surrender to God, the moment I make him Lord of my life, I'm no longer calling the shots. He's calling the shots. In light of his, his mercy, we respond to him, say, God, all that we are, it's, it's yours. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, he says, honor God with your body. What you do with your body actually 
matters. And a lot of people think because they love God with their heart and with their mind that somehow it doesn't matter what they do in their body. And, and again, the Bible's just making that clear. That's not true. Here's what Jesus says, Mark 12, 29 through 30. He's asked what's the most important commandment in all the Bible. He says, he says the most important one, Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the core of your being, your, your, your center of emotions and desires. Love God with all your soul. That's the essence of who you are, like your whole self. With your mind, that's your intellect, that's your understanding, and with your strength, that's your, your physical strength, your physical energy, your physical abilities. That's how Jesus says the number one command. That's what we, we love God in that way. Back to Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Interesting. Not dead sacrifices, that would be a lot easier, I think. But living sacrifices. The old system was dead sacrifices. The new system is living sacrifices. They would place an animal on the altar. The fire would consume the sacrifice. But now Paul says it's no longer a dead sacrifice. It's you on the altar. It's me on the altar. It's living sacrifice. And I often say, you know, the problem with living sacrifices is we keep crawling off the altar. Right? The altar's hot, right? So like, ah, it's not real comfortable. So I'm going to crawl off. That's why we say here every week, we're imperfect people in progress because no one's surrendered to God perfectly. And so whenever we realize that, whenever we recognize that, we realize, God, I haven't been loving my wife like you love the church. So I'm going to crawl back on the altar and apologize. God, my, my thought life has been a mess this week, but I'm thankful for your mercy and I'm going to crawl back on the altar. God, I haven't been stewarding my finances the way that you asked me to. I realize that, and I'm crawling back on the altar. God, I've been gossiping to make myself look better, to make others look worse. I know that's not according to your plan, and I'm crawling back on the altar. God, I know my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I haven't been treating it as such. So God, I'm going to crawl back on the altar. The more you offer your body to God, the less you'll sin. Here's what Martin Luther said. He said, idle hands are the devil's playground. And for some people, the reason we keep tripping over our own feet is one, because the body's the beachhead for sin, but another possibility is we just have too much idle time on our hands and not invest enough time serving God, not invest enough time hanging out with God's people, studying God's word, doing things that, that would benefit those around us. Romans 12.1, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Holy, meaning set apart. And, and, and when we come to God, we're, we're saying, God, I give you my life. I'm not, I'm not perfect. doesn't mean like I'm flawless, but it means, God, my life is no longer, it, no longer mine. It's set apart for you. It's for your purposes. It's not for me. God, my life is, is for you. Many believe that, again, that Paul's using this imagery of, of burnt offerings. And whenever you would present an offering, it wasn't just part of the body that was consumed. It was the whole body, the whole self was, was dedicated to God. It was set apart for God. And not only that, but it was pleasing to God. Oftentimes when we read in the Old Testament about, about sacrifice, this aroma from the sacrifice would come up to God. And it says it's a, a pleasing aroma. And Paul riffs on that not only here in Romans 12, but in 2 Corinthians 2.15, he says, for we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, when you live life as a living sacrifice, 
it encourages the people next to you. It encourages people to say, man, I need to go all in with God too. Not only do believers take notes, but he says unbelievers take note too. That, that, that people recognize what you're doing. In other words, when we offer our bodies to God, when we allow the faith on the inside to become evident on the outside, it's a pleasing aroma to God. People are encouraged. You live the Christian life. You live it in your body. It smells like Jesus, looks like Jesus, by acts done in the body. So in other words, do spiritual things with your body. So a good question is, how could you use your body this week to serve God? What could you do to love God with your mind, to love God with your heart, but also love him with your hands, with your feet, with your actions? Is there anything you've been doing with your body that you know is not pleasing to God? Maybe you could course correct that this week and crawl back on the altar in that area of your life and present to God your body. You know, one thing I was thinking about with this is when we worship, we worship God, not just with our words, not just with our mind, but we worship God with our, our body. And some, for me, I, I'll say this, whenever I first came to church and I was like, saw people lifting their hands, I was like, they got questions? Like, why are they doing that? That's weird. It just it freaked me out a little bit, honestly. And then I, I talked to a person that was helping me, that was kind of discipling me, helping me know God more. And they said, well, man, well, Tim, it's all over throughout the Bible. You know, James talks about, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without wrath or doubting. I mean, all the Psalms talk about this. Psalm 141 verse 2 says this, receive my prayer as incense, my lifted hands as an evening sacrifice. For some of you, one of the ways you could worship God, you could present your bodies to God today, right now in this moment as a living sacrifice would be just to, I'm going to lift up my hands to God. And you say, well, man, I feel super uncomfortable with that. Well, hey, if following Jesus is all about your comfort, you're not going to follow Jesus very far. I mean, just start here. Like, take a pledge. I'm, I'm, Jesus, I'm worshiping you. And then maybe you'll get to here, and then maybe here, maybe here, maybe here. Worship God with your body. Use your body as part of worship to God. Serve God with your body. Do things that please God in your body. I was thinking about how to close. I just want to close with this. Therefore, in light of all he's done for you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, I challenge you, I call you to action in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's your only logical response to all God has done for you. Father, we thank you so much.